Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin the program this morning with Anna Han of Wells Fargo, the equity strategist over there. Anna, I know that in the short term, you are cautious. Longer term, you are firmly in the risk on camp. Can you tell me why? Thanks, John. Well, even with the reopening being slowing down in key areas such as Texas, you're seeing nationwide that it's continuing and the consumer spending is coming back. That demand has been pent up. So as that persists, we think that the risk seeking and the equity ride could continue. Anna, what do you take away from the store closures that we've seen from the reopening process hitting pause in places like Texas? It's certainly concerning, John, you know, especially with Texas being one of the largest GDP contributors to the national GDP that is. Uh, it's concerning. But where it really needs to impact is, is it going to lead to several other states closing down officially, re-putting uh, uh, re in those uh, quarantine measures? And if that happens to us, that's really going to set back the economic recovery that had been going on since April. And I want to go back to your derivatives work years ago, and particularly almost back to your physics and dynamics at Yale University. And real simple, what's the bet of the market right now? What's the exposure of the market right now into the summer? When you say exposure, you're thinking risk exposure, I'm guessing? So if you think about that, yeah. there are people who are positioned for the upside, but it's not this uh, euphoric reach for all grab. You still have a lot of people putting on protection and being cautious because, to be frank, you know, March was only three months ago and it really hurt some investors. On the other hand, you have those that are uh, been piling into the markets. You look at the retail flow. We look at some Robin Hood data and you see that people are eager to participate in this rally. So so you have two warring forces. Our view is still that risk on and longer term equities will be higher. What's really interesting, Ariane, and I'm glad you bring it up, and it goes back, folks, to what's called a rehedge, where you go out and you have to reset up your belief structure three months out or six months out. Do you anticipate more volatility in equities as institutions and hedge funds have to struggle to rehedge, to reset their bets? We do think that the couple of months ahead will be volatile. And when you look at the derivatives market and the term structure on the S&P options, it's looking like we're going to have some choppiness and that elevated VIX could persist for some time. That being said, what's given us confidence in our equity play is that you see credit spreads remaining rather tight. And even as credit spreads remain tight, that keeps a cap on those equity vols. So it lets us be more confident telling investors to continue that risk on value play. Uh, Anna, yesterday we got the results from the Federal Reserve stress tests of the U.S. banks. It was actually somewhat surprising, and it came with a possible review further of the capital plans of the big banks later this year. The Fed is requiring banks to resubmit those. Does that uncertainty give you any pause about investing in financials, given the fact that their dividends are capped, they're not going to be buying back any shares through at least the third quarter, and there does seem to be a feeling that there could be additional measures taken in the very near future. You bring up a great point, Lisa. And let me start with the dividends. So they cap dividends and they tie those dividends to the income stream. But I think them being able to pay out mostly the third quarter is something we expected. You know, we weren't expecting this huge raise in dividends. So it's not the worst news for us. 
and them slashing uh, buybacks and saying no buybacks third quarter. I would say the consensus view was mostly no buybacks for the rest of this year. So that was rather expected. What was uh, unprecedented was that they're going to ask for another uh, review, a, a resubmitting of that capital plan in September. But, you know, frankly, it's kind of like getting a, a test graded and getting it back with all these red marks. If you get a chance to review and resubmit, it could actually help and be something to look forward to in September as another catalyst. All right, and uh, just broadening out a little bit, we want to look at the risks heading into November. There was a time when in a political year, an election year, the election would be on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Right now, it seems to be on the back burner. At what point will we start to see election risk bleed into the market action? I think actually it's already starting to bleed into the market, Lisa. Uh, it certainly has been the back burner, like you said, because of the coronavirus and the reopening of the economy. But more and more, you're seeing this all being tied together. As President Trump is handling the coronavirus situation, that affects his popularity in the polls. And as uh, candidate Biden has become uh, more and more likely to win the presidential seat, it comes into question what if the Dems take a full sweep? If that happens, the changes in the new economic plan you see from that side, that could come a lot faster than expected. So the domestic political risk to us looks a bit underpriced, and we're going to be watching that carefully as it develops. Tom Keane, this has been one of these stories that has come on the radar in a massive way in the last week, the election. Just more and more people discussing the potential outcome come November. And I always think that sometimes the market gets like a distracted toddler, which can only focus on one thing. And the one thing this yeah. market is focused on come November is the tax cut and whether the tax cut gets reversed and the Republicans lose the Senate. That seems to be overwhelmingly the single focus of market participants going into November. Well, that's maybe the focus of the participants, and maybe that's typical, John, of elections, to worry about the tax ramifications of all Democrat, House, Senate, uh, White House as well, or any of the combinations, the permutations you can get. But what is so important here, folks, about the tax ramifications is all the other distractions as well. Anna, one of the great overlays here for equity investors will be some form, if I'm elected, free beer fiscal stimulus. We may even get two tranches of fiscal stimulus before the election. How does that fiscal stimulus play into the Powell put, the ability of the Fed to prop up equities? I think it helps uh, the Powell put, really. And, you know, if you've seen how Chairman Powell has spoken in the past OFOMC meetings, he's asking for more fiscal aid, saying that we've done this much on the monetary side, but we need more. So right now where we put it, we think definitely uh, it's, it's better than a coin flip to say that we're going to get more stimulus. But in what form? Looks like it's probably going to take more like a state and local authority, uh, aid there. But uh, we don't know yet. We're going to have to see when Congress reconvenes in July. And that's going to help the economic recovery for sure. Anna, thank you. Great to get you on the program and got to get you back soon. Anna Hand there of Wells Fargo on this equity market. To set up our guest right now, and we have a perfect guest for you to reframe for the weekend and for the second half of 2020, there's not much of a data check because there's not much going on. Futures negative two, but I'm going to point out to four decimal points, folks, the two-year yield point one. 
759. It will be amazing to see if the two-year yield breaks down with the stability we've seen. Brett Schutte follows that kind of stuff. He's with Northwestern Mutual and looks at the placement of investment for Northwestern clients nationwide. Brett, thrilled to have you with us. And I want to go like CFA 101, I'd call it as well. Let's go to first principles. Why is watching the two-year yield important right now? Well, I guess I bring it back to kind of a lot of the comments on the disconnect supposedly between the market and the economy and what that means. And I guess to me, as you think about that two-year yield, I'd also point out the 10-year yield is 0.7%. So the question of why are equities still up, I think, is answered a lot by those competing yields. Because to me, relative valuation is more important than absolute valuation. Um, our clients have to put their um, – our advisors have to put their clients' money somewhere. And when yields are that low – you have a stock market that's more supported, right? And so to me, the yields are going to stay low for some time. Uh, and I think the Federal Reserve absolutely wants to keep them there, and they want you to, to buy stocks as a result. And that's the difference in my career over the past 26 years. I've seen a much more active Federal Reserve, uh, a Federal Reserve that cares about where markets are at, a Federal Reserve that wants you to take risk, and they'll continue to try to get you to take risk. And Brent, your clients, I'm sure, want yield-enhancing strategies, given where the front end of the yield curve is, given where the long end of the yield curve is as well. What do you suggest they should do in an environment of zero rates for the foreseeable future? Yeah, that's the really difficult question because, um, you know, if you stretch for risk, you can get caught off sides if you have risk on in both sides of your portfolio. And so we do have an overweight to equities. We have tilted it towards that. Um, but we're making sure on the opposite side of the equation that we're not taking too much risk. And I think where people really get caught is where they actually are loaded up on risk on both sides. And so right now, um, you know, given where yields are, we, we aren't stretching for yield there, but we are overweighting equities because we do believe the path of least resistance, even with all the virus conversation that we just had, is still higher. And so it's always playing off. Well, Brent, let's talk about how you're overweighting equities, if we can. What does overweighting but, equities mean right now? You're taking the cyclicality on. Are you adding to, to that in the dips we've seen over the last couple of days? Are you staying long the more so-called defensive parts of this market, which some people now consider to be software stocks? What do you do when you're overweight stocks? What does that look like? So right now we have a foot in both camps. And so when we added back uh, at the end of March, early April, we did add more to cyclicality, but we still do have an overweight to large cap. I guess that's more of the timing type of mechanism. I think if you look out the next few years, you will see parts of the market that have underperformed um, will actually do better as the economy continues to climb or to walk out of this economic valley that COVID created. Actually, we created this economic valley by actually broad-based social distancing. And now I, I know there's parts of the economy that are closing, but on the opposite side, there's other parts that are reopening. And we think a nationwide lockdown is a slim probability, which I think you combine that with what the Fed is doing. And not, let's not forget that each morning we wake up and we find out that we have better ideas of treatments um, we, we have vaccines that are progressing. And so that would be the ultimate end game where you would actually see a pretty heavy market rally, I suppose. And I think that's what's keeping stocks afloat. Brent, when you talk about betting on some of the less well-loved uh, stocks, like some of the smaller cap or uh, some of the more beaten up sectors, I'm trying to pair that with the idea that the bankruptcy rate right now has risen to the highest level since 2009 and expected to continue to increase. As even though companies are able to access credit and are propped up by the Federal Reserve, they still are failing given the lack of demand. How are you avoiding these pitfalls going forward? I mean, if you look historically, I think small caps perform well coming out of every recession. And so I, I would imagine that if I looked back, I would find that to be the case, that there would be bankruptcies rising during the same time period. 
And so, you know, certainly we have active managers. Um, we also do um, use ETFs. Uh, but in general, I guess that, that's kind of the details to the overall, I think, asset uh, class performance. And I think historically, um, when real rates are negative, when the Federal Reserve is, is trying to keep them there, which they're going to do for some time, and when the economy begins to climb out of the hole, um, small caps typically perform fairly well. Uh, and so I, I don't know if I have a perfect answer for you, um, but I'm, I think that's kind of the, the, the detail to the overall asset allocation and the asset class climbing out of that uh, valley. And, and let's keep in mind, they've been under Brent, your optimism, the- Brent, excuse me, but, but your, your, your optimism very much is reflected by a lot of individuals. And I think you're not alone in feeling that ultimately we will come to the other side. There will be a vaccine. We will get through this and reemerge on the other side in some form in the not so distant future. What are you baking into that assumption? When do we get the vaccine? Do we get another uh, fiscal rescue package and perhaps a re-upping of the stimulus enhanced unemployment benefits? Sure, a couple of things. One, I'm not very sure my optimism is shared. So I look at the Bank of America surveys. I look at what hedge funds and pension fund managers are doing. And I'm not for sure I see the optimism that everybody thinks is out there. I look at the American Association of Individual Investors. I see the bearish survey. Um, and, and the net number of bulls being low. I think right now the reason why the market rallies every time there's a dip is because people are waking up and realizing that you may actually get that vaccine, which people were skeptical about. If it continues to stretch past the next you know, six months to nine months, I think then my bullish optimism may be wrong. Um, but I'm, I'm not for sure, and I guess I bring it back to common sense. If we don't go back to a nationwide lockdown, with central banks doing what they're doing, um, you know, I think the market is at least supported, and I uh, get the benefit of a little bit more of an intermediate term time horizon than perhaps many of your guests who come on this show get. Brent Shudder of Northwestern Mutual, Chief Investment Strategist. Brent, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Thank you. Ken Leon joining us now from CFRA. Ken, don't worry. I'm starting the interview, not Tom. What did we learn from the Federal Reserve yesterday evening? It's unprecedented. Um, I think. What was released yesterday was uh, enormous insight about the Federal Reserve's views about the U.S. economy and also the sensitivity uh, to the coronavirus. It also was insights in terms of what the expectations under scenarios of loan losses for the banks and then in terms of return of capital. But it was absolutely fascinating to see the narrative that the Fed has Looking out from today, not only over to the rest yeah. of this year, but 2021. And there was much more language and scenarios, not only to a U shape, not a V shape, but a W scenario where hopefully not right. we don't have a second rise of COVID 19. But the Fed has been thinking about this and deliberated yesterday. So I think that's important as the economy. Ken, you absolutely nail this, as you always do. I mean, I was thunderstruck by the language we saw from Randall Kors and the rest of the team. Why did they do that, Ken? What's the backstory on the why where there was so much ambiguity and mystery out past, say, September? Tom, it's a great question. And there was two things. One, they had to have a narrative that linked you know, over 10 years, stress tests that didn't look at an economy where unemployment was far greater than their adverse scenario of 10.3% unemployment. Second, we're looking at unemployment that is not likely to recover with job growth and the Fed's view 
but over a longer period of time. And that has led to what does this mean in terms of the health of the banking system and what can the Fed do, even though on the 10-year framework they are strong, but the Fed just doesn't know what the outlook is for the rest of this year or next year. So that brings in their actions, uh, as we know, which is uh, to limit essentially to only dividend dividends, but no dividend increase, pull back 70% of their capital return, no stock repurchases. And by the way, banks, from the largest ones, JP Morgan, to, the, to those of the 33, uh, we want to continue this conversation with the Fed bank supervisors uh, looking at data and, and look for the capital plans by year end. That's an amazing Ken, uh, reference. Exactly where I wanted to, to go is exactly the idea of what they're going to be doing later on. How concerning is the additional capital plan that the Fed has asked banks to resubmit, which Allison Williams of Bloomberg Intelligence has said is a broad negative for the banking sector? Well, we already know in terms of at least uh, what they're planned for this year for dividends and no buybacks, but it brings you back uh, to the July earnings coming up with uh, loan losses and the projected loan losses on their historical framework was 433 billion. And when you get into the COVID-19 scenarios, you're looking anywhere from 600 to over 700 million. You know, so it's, it's, the Fed is recognizing that banks are going to see, especially in three areas uh, related to commercial loans, uh, credit cards, and real estate, that there's incredible uncertainty about the economy, the labor market, and there's going to be loan losses. Uh, so I think uh, the, the Fed, of course, is being realistic to it's a new environment. And even though the even though before March uh, the banks look to be very strong, they're going to be much more conservative than the C-suite or the CEOs of the larger banks about their capital. Ken, the reaction in markets has been relatively muted. We are seeing Wells Fargo shares down about three percent ahead of the uh, trading day opening, but that doesn't take away yesterday's nearly five percent gain. It seems like people are pretty sanguine about the measures that the Fed has taken. Do you agree, or do you think that there is more potential downside for bank stocks? So when you get to that category of capital return, I don't think there's big no surprises here. There is a threshold in terms of computed net income uh, to to dividends or the payout ratio, and Wells Fargo uh, may not need it in terms of uh, their ratio, 150%. But overall, the market, the equity market, and investors see the banks as of really attractive value and, and trading at discounts to net tangible book value. Uh, they are the ultimate cyclical stocks in the market. And I think looking beyond the next six months, Banks are likely to do much better, and given the protection from the Fed and their capital requirements, there's not that much more downside unless yeah. the loan losses are going to be incredibly higher than even what the Fed is right. projecting. Ken, one final quick question here: What's all this mean for James Diamond, Brian Moynihan, and the rest of the guys? I mean, what you know, like what? What? Are, how do they respond to this as they wander into July? Their, their spirit and comments are going to be about phase two, which is the road to recovery. Uh, the first phase was taking care of employees and customers. 
Now they have to be bank executives and do the hard work in terms of making sure that they can communicate the strength of their balance sheet, their ability to manage uh, credit yep. risk, and their ability really to manage all the businesses, including the capital markets. So they're going to be positive. But, uh, you know, given what we read from the Fed, yet, you know, today, uh, it's really hard for any of these banks to look out and give uh, any ability to project uh, what their businesses will do on performance by year end. So it's going to be a fascinating ride for six months, Tom, John, you know, just related to uh, the dynamics of the U.S. economy and global, how it filters to banks. And as investors, as we look at the profile of these stocks and also the return we get as investors. Couldn't agree more, Ken. Really well summarized. Kenneth Leon there, CFRA Global Director of Industry and Equity Research. <clears throat> This is a joy right now to bring in Brad Setzer to say he's with the Council on Foreign Relations, barely does justice to coming out of Harvard, Sciences Po, and Oxford, where he was a young guy and the papers came off the screen. That happens very rarely. It's somebody writes papers and they come out of the screen, and that's what young Setzer did uh, at a most early age. He served the nation at Treasury. He joins us today, Tannenbaum Fellow at CFR. Brad, Richard Haas has out right now my book of the summer, The World. It is a wonderful, simple, straight-talking book on international relations. What would you frame as the Setzer future of our international relations? If it's not Washington consensus, what is it? Oh, I'll give you a classic dodge. I mean, I honestly think it is way too early to tell. Uh, the choices that will frame the post-pandemic economic future uh, haven't really been made. Obviously, the outcome here in November matters. Uh, but I think there's a, a, a still a broad set of, of policy decisions on trade, on uh, American alliances, on the relationship with China, uh, that will be central to the post-pandemic world. And we're only beginning, I think, to lay those out. Uh, I look, Brad, at where we are and after this election, the day after this election, what will be the best practice to resurrect our State Department from where we've been the last administration, whether it's a second Trump term or a new Biden term? Well, it's a lot easier to imagine the process with a new Biden term uh, led by a. Uh, you know, I, I have every reason to think that uh, that Joe Biden would pick uh, a very strong, very uh, well-respected Secretary of State. Uh, but I think Biden has made it very clear that he would prioritize America's ties to his traditional allies, uh, and. Uh, at least in the first six months, I think that that would be a relatively uh, easy to orchestrate in the sense that there would be an enormous uh, appetite on the part of America's traditional allies uh, to work more closely with the new administration. Uh, the hard part comes when it needs to sort of define the substance of the new relationship. Uh, but, you know, there's some pretty obvious things that Biden could do to get uh, relations off on a better foot. I mean, narrowing trade conflicts to focus on China and settling some of the outstanding trade 
tensions with Europe is, for example, a fairly obvious step. Brad, there's a question going forward how much we are going to continue with the deglobalization that we seem to be uh, talking about, at least, if not uh, effectuating over the past few years. I'm wondering what, to what degree you're seeing us rejigger supply chains away from China, redomesticate them in a way that a lot of people have been calling for. Well, to be honest, right now the uh, the data is telling us the opposite story. So there's a, a disconnect between the discussion of deglobalization and the reality, which is right now, in some ways, the world is more Sinocentric. Uh, U.S. production is still uh, down, still hindered uh, by the state of the pandemic in the United States, while Chinese production uh, is more or less back at capacity. So what you see is that, it, and this is not just for the U.S., around the world, um, imports are down, but imports from China are down less than overall imports. So Chinese imports are increasing in market share. And in the past couple of months of uh, U.S. and Chinese data, uh, imports from China have been flat, whereas, you know, at the beginning of the year, they were down 20 25%. So I think, you know, in the first instance, the, the the pandemic and the way the pandemic has moved around the world has, uh, at least in the second quarter, reinforced dependence on China. There are, you know, China is the global center of mask production right now, and everybody is welcome uh, in that rise uh, to helping meet demand. Uh, so my, my view is that if you really are serious about uh, reducing supply chain dependence, uh, it will take policies that actively promote that outcome, whether that's how the U.S. procures medical equipment uh, or whether it's uh, some other measures that support increased resilience. Uh, at the current exchange rate with China up and running, the natural pressure is actually towards reinforced dependence on China. Brad, just real quick, 20 seconds, would, is, would you basically consolidate this by saying that the tariffs have failed so far to reduce international dependency between the U.S. and China? No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I think, you know, the tariffs clearly, the, what, the tariffs failed to bring production back to the United States. The production, the tariffs were reasonably effective at creating an incentive to move some production to Vietnam. Imports from China would be down about 100 to 150 billion, 20% ballpark, below where they were before the tariffs. So the tariffs had an effect. Uh, but some of that effect is, is sort of strangely currently being uh, undone by the course of the pandemic and the fact that the Chinese production chain got back up and running before everyone else did. Brad Setzer, CFR fellow, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, as always, wonderful to hear your insights. One of the joys this year, in the past 12 months, was to soiree down to Washington, this is pre-pandemic, and wander into a building and see a wonderfully, wonderfully reinvigorated International Institute for Finance. And this is under the leadership of Tim Adams. He is out of Kentucky, Tim Adams, serving the nation uh, at Treasury, and took on the, the, the wonderful job at IIF, the consortium of all the banks worldwide, 
uh, truly reinvigorating that important institution. And we're thrilled that Tim Adams could join us uh, this morning. Tim, how is IIF doing in a pandemic? I mean, I guess you go virtual, but if any of our listeners' groups wants to get together, there's nothing like physical contact, is there? Uh, Hey, Tom, thanks for having me. And that's probably the best intro I think I've ever had. Uh, You know, about uh, 14, 15 weeks ago, we went virtual. We've done 40 events over that period of time, 6,000 participants. So we didn't miss a beat. Uh, We're able to function from home, from our basements, our garages, our attics. (laughs) I do miss my colleagues. I miss seeing our clients and our uh, uh, friends around the world. And I look forward to being able to do that. But we're out there functioning every day. Tim, one of the great questions, and there's a stress test in the global issue in European banking and that, and the big banks, the ones that uh, you spend a lot of time talking to, is we're all waiting for consolidation. Does this disease, this virus, this pandemic, does it speed up that process or does it delay the process of global banking consolidation? A good question, Tom. I think in, in the short term, we're all firefighting. We're ensuring that capital continues to flow to the real economy. But I think once we come out of that, it'll be a recognition that we need consolidation. I think we're going to see it in Europe. We've seen a couple of announcements uh, in the Gulf states over the last couple of days, some large banks consolidating. We're going to see it in Asia. And the U.S. has been consolidating for 20 or 30 years, and that process will continue, if not accelerate. So, Tim, I guess I have to admit not being a, a banking expert, but I've read a lot of the research this morning. I was a little bit surprised that the uh, you know, the uh, Federal Reserve added some new rules that could limit dividends and buybacks because I thought the stress test, the banks came through in pretty good shape. I've been told by bank analysts and, and fund managers that the banks are in much better shape now than they were going into the 2008 uh, financial crisis. How do you kind of play that or what's, what's your take on that? Well, you know, first of all, the Fed said uh, quite explicitly we're the source of strength uh, for the economy rather than uh, the source of the problem. So very different than uh, 2008, 2009. And in the intervening period, we've raised globally almost $4 trillion worth of capital. So the banks are well capitalized. Uh, lending is up in the U.S. Deposits are up. And we're channeling resource to the real economy. But the stress test showed that we need to continue to husband resources for potential downside going forward. So is the sense that um, this is a, a precautionary measure? Because as I look at some of the big banks, the J.P. Morgan's, the Bank of America's of the world, the balance sheets look pretty rock solid to me. I, I completely agree. I think this is being just cautionary. That's the Fed's job. And I must applaud the Fed. Uh, Jay Powell and Randy Quarles and others yeah. have done a remarkable job in this period of time. It is precautionary. I think it makes the makes sense. The stock price is taking yeah. it this morning. We saw the same thing in Europe when similar measures are put in place, but it is time for caution. And this is extreme caution. I, I applaud the Fed's uh, efforts. Tim Adams, how is the relationship of our August politicians with the bankers? I mean, I mean, what was it? Five years ago, four years ago, we had bankers lined up swearing in in Congress and all that. Is the relationship proved a bit? Oh, the relationship is much better. We have a great relationship with the administration, also members of Congress. You know, again, Tom, we're part of the solution. We're channeling capital to the real economy. Lending is up. Deposits are up. You know, we have provisions in place for okay. relief, for auto relief. So, yes. Well, no, that, that's very fair that the Trump administration, I think, has been very much pro sort of corporation and Wall Street and that. How do you, Tim, and, and with your wonderful political attuneness, 
how do you feel the banks will adapt to the protests across this nation that are much more social, not so much Black Lives Matter, but all lives matter? How will the banks immediately adapt to that? That's a great question, Tom. You know, if you look at uh, Jamie Dimon, who headed the uh, business roundtable for the past three years, he, uh, among other corporate leaders, are looking for ways to promote diversity within their own institutions. We need to reach out to forgotten communities, those who uh, feel that uh, not only economy, but socially, they've been left behind. We need to do a better job. They're without question. And that's I mean, the real challenge before us. What, what I find, Tim Adams, so important here is there's been some true leadership and indeed governance on this by selected bankers. But it's got to get much broader within banking, even farther beyond than the IIF. Are you optimistic bankers can do that? I'm optimistic that we can be a part of the solution without question. I've done a number of phone calls this week where the top topic was how can we play a positive role in society, not just in capital formation and lending, but how can we be a real agent of change? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. One of the reasons, folks, I hope this pandemic ends is so I can do a soiree in Washington with Tim Adams (laughs) and the IIF. It is an important meeting with a lot of really, really good expert uh, discussion. Tim Adams, he is the uh, CEO of the International Institute for Finance. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.